0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Robert Kaplan is the president of the Dallas Fed. He is also a big Kansas City Chiefs fan. And we thank you for getting up and continuing on, even though that was a rough one.
2: (laughs) Well, there's always next year. We'll be back.
1: (laughs) Well, there's a debate underway about what kind of inflation dangers are out there from additional government spending. Uh, And if inflation does break out, uh, you heard John call you uh, the elephant in the room. You got to deal with it. So what is your estimation? If we get the kind of additional stimulus they're talking about from Washington, what kind of inflation danger does that present?
2: There's no question that if we're able to get people broad, broadly vaccinated, uh, uh, if we're able to defeat the variants of the virus uh, and we have a reopening as we go through this year, uh, that along with fiscal support is gonna mean that, uh, that we have strong GDP growth. We're gonna, we're gonna make big improvements on unemployment. And you, it, it, it wouldn't be surprising to see the cyclical elements of inflation build uh, and, and I think that you're going to have some s- supply outages. We're already seeing evidence of it. Uh, semiconductors, metals, wood products. Uh, you, you may see a little bit of even in, in oil markets. But, but I don't think those are going to be persistent. Uh, I don't think those are going to be long term. Uh, but I think there's no question the cyclical forces were, will build. And over time, the question for me is how strong are the accelerating forces of technology and technology-enabled disruption, which have been muting uh, inflationary pressures for some time. Uh, how do those two cyclical and structural forces play out over time? That's what I'm going to be watching for. The, 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 pers- the, the temporary jump in inflation or rise won't surprise me. The question for me will be, how persistent is it? And I, for me, I think the jury's out on that right now.
1: Well, they're talking about a package that would be three times the size of what the CBO projects the output gap to be. Is that too much?
2: So I'm going to not surprise – won't surprise you. I'm going to deliberately stay away from that topic. Uh, what, what Right now at the Dallas Fed, uh, before any new package is enacted, we're already – our forecast for GDP growth this year is approximately 5%. Uh, it's going to be, again – loaded toward the latter parts of the year. And it assumes that we're able to vaccinate the, uh, the uh, population broadly and, uh, and defeat these variants and get more b- mobility and engagement. I think what I'm hearing in my district uh, is what we need first and foremost, uh, which is being discussed, uh, as you know, in these package debates, we, we need more money to help achieve these vaccinations. That's the key right now. Uh, and it's going to take mobile units. It's going to take more personnel. Uh, but if you can get people broadly vaccinated and get more mobility engagement, that's what will open the small businesses and get a lot of these a lot of these uh, people that are out of work back to work, and more money to reopen schools in person. Schools I'm talking to need to be retrofitted, and we've got a historically high level of women who've left the workforce, working mothers. Uh, and we need schools to be reopened uh, and and some investment also in child care to get those women back into the workforce. That's critical. So those are some of the priorities I hear about. Obviously, extended unemployment benefits to bridge, when we're until we're able to get people back to work. That's another priority I'm hearing. But th- those are some of the things I'd mention. And I'll stay away from the debate in Washington. Uh,
1: we've got $3 trillion authorized so far for COVID relief, and another $2 trillion is what they're talking about. Uh, the argument has been from Federal Reserve officials that that's sustainable because interest rates are so low. And as long as we keep the economy growing faster than the debt, we'll be okay. Are you confident that That can happen, that the economy will grow faster?
2: Uh, We're going to get a strong boost to GDP growth in 2022, which I just talked about, and above-trend growth, excuse me, in 2021, and most likely above-trend in 2022. The issue over the horizon uh, is, what are we doing to improve sustainable GDP growth? And what do I mean by that? Once we climb out of uh, and recover from the hole we're in and recover from COVID, we're gonna get back to some real challenges we had pre-COVID. Slowing workforce growth, aging of the population, and productivity growth has not been sufficient to offset that. And so what would help with that? Find ways to improve labor force growth. Again, I talked about women reentering the workforce, but also early childhood literacy, uh, improving secondary education skills training, closing the skills gap more widespread Wi-Fi in the United States. Uh, I, I I would love to see more investments in education and some infrastructure items, particularly Wi-Fi, that will help create more sustainable growth. But that'll be the challenge that we're gonna be talking about over the horizon, how to improve workforce growth and improve productivity. And and so, w- will we grow faster than debt grows? Uh, We're going to have to find ways to improve GDP growth uh, or otherwise the answer to that. uh, I don't know whether the answer to that will be yes or no otherwise.
1: Um, I know that you and all of your colleagues basically have said it's too early to talk about when you might taper QE. But I'm wondering how you assess the danger of inflating a bubble in financial markets which is what a lot of people on wall street are talking about now uh and the 120 billion you're buying a month to keep markets functioning when markets are functioning just fine uh is is there a point at which you think um the danger of the markets bubble is bigger than the danger of pulling back just a little bit
2: so the uh, the the way i make that trade-off while we're in the teeth of this pandemic Uh, And until it's clear we've weathered the pandemic, I think it's appropriate to be aggressive with our tools. However, once it's clear that we've that we've weathered this pandemic and we're not out of the woods yet by a long shot. But once it's clear we've weathered the pandemic and we put this pandemic and the effects of it in the rearview mirror and we're making substantial progress toward our toward full employment and price stability, I think we'd be far healthier to be weaning off these extraordinary measures. Uh, so that's the issue. Uh, and I think as soon as it's clear we, we've we gotten past COVID, which I don't know when that will be, uh, I think it would be far healthier to be weaning off these extraordinary measures.
1: Well, uh, speaking of questions about bubbles in the markets, your initial career was as an investment banker, and now we've got this SPAC, IPO mania going on. Uh, what do you think of that? Does that tell you something about where we are in financial markets or, or this economic cycle?
2: So I won't comment on any individual situation because there's a lot of factors that go to, in, into any, any one of them. But I would say broadly, when you're, when you're keeping rates at zero and you've committed to keep rates at zero for an extended period, you're buying 80 billion of treasuries and 40 billion of mortgage-backed securities. We should expect that that's going to have a material impact on liquidity, financial assets, and uh, that's why I've said w- we'd be wise as as soon as we're able to uh, to wean off these extraordinary measures because these measures certainly have an impact on financial assets, and we'd be wise at the Fed to acknowledge it and and uh, and be very sensitive to it. And, I, and I'm uh, I'm very concerned. Uh, And and watching, uh, you you know, excess risk taking and excesses and balances, particularly in the non-bank financial sector. The issue is while we're fighting this pandemic and until it's clear we're out of the woods, I think we've got to be aggressive. So uh, the the challenge will be after we it's clear we've weathered it. We've got to we've got to move away from these extraordinary measures, in my opinion, and I think we'll be far healthier uh, for it.
1: I know the Fed doesn't uh, regulate equity trading except for your control over the uh, margin rate, but what do you think of the sort of meme uh, enthusiasm that's been going around? Does that worry you uh, in terms of a a potential effect on the economy?
2: So, so again, I won't comment on any individual situation. Uh, I I don't at the moment see uh, systemic risk uh, in these markets, but I do think – you're seeing and i'll speak broadly not about the situation you asked but broadly you're seeing the effects as you'd expect of uh of again uh 80 billion of treasuries and 40 billion of mortgage backed securities i think it's necessary while we're fighting the pandemic but again as we after we get beyond it i I think we need to wean off some of these extraordinary measures and i'm watching non-bank financial markets very carefully and uh, what I would call excess risk taking. What I mean by that positioning that when um, uh, when vol volatility is relatively low and credit spreads are tight and liquidity is good, look benign, but in hindsight, when you get a vol spike and credit spreads widen and volatility tends to drive up drop, you find people realize they're over risked and they've got to de risk and they've got to do it quickly. We saw some of that in March, by the way. Uh, and and I'm, I'm concerned that we are, we should watch that carefully because there's uh, there's always uh, that's always something we ought we, we need to be aware of. And, and I am uh, watching that carefully.
1: Before we let you go, I got to ask you quickly. You're our oil guy. Um, how's the pandemic left the oil patch? And um, I know that President Biden's energy plans are somewhat controversial in your area. Have you modeled the effect of moving away from fossil fuels and the impact on your district?
2: Yeah, we have, and, and most participants in the industry have also modeled it. And so you've got an industry that's far more consolidated, uh, and, and you've seen a number of, of failures, bankruptcies, consolidations, uh, deleveragings. And I think that you've also seen an industry that is going to spend a lot more money on sequestration, carbon capture, and reducing their their greenhouse gas emissions footprint and also an industry that is committed now when they have excess cash flow to returning more of it to shareholders and less of it to drilling. So because of that, we think that uh, supply um, and production in the United States will be flat with uh, 2020, this coming year. Uh, and even though prices are, are moving up, uh, people may be surprised that supply does not move up like the way they would have expected to in the past. So the challenge in the United States is to keep a healthy oil and gas business, understanding that a smaller and smaller percentage of energy consumption is gonna go to fossil fuels and much more aggressive energy consumption to wind, solar, other alternatives. And the challenge is gonna be to make that transition.
1: Robert Kaplan, (laughs) Dallas Fed president, oil patch leader. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us this morning here on Bloomberg.
3: Troy Gaske of Skybridge. Good morning, patiently. Troy. Is it, it about the spread still, or is it about the yeah, absolute look, yield? Come on,
4: it, it's <laughs> it's really about just an overwhelming amount of monetary stimulus in the system, right? And, and to your point, negative yields, real yields, in, in sovereigns that keep getting more negative as inflation comes back and rates can't, haven't cut, caught up yet. And there's just a dearth of income. I mean, the only markets in the world that have still meaningful cash flow or in Mm -hmm. structured credit because they got hammered so bad in March and they haven't come back fully and the fundamentals still look fairly attractive. Um, but from our perspective, and not to back up Lisa and, and Todd, by the way, thanks for calling me esteemed, um, but you know, if, if you're going to make a choice right now where you want to be in the capital structure, at, at least in the equity part of the capital structure, you still have meaningful upside that this waterfall of, waterfall, uh, waterfall of cash and fiscal stimulus can drive higher. Yes, you can get spreads to tighten more, but high yield hasn't been high yield for the last six months at least, right? It, it wasn't even that high of a yield coming into yeah. the crisis. Not so, good- you know, from our perspective, you, you have massive money supply, massive fiscal stimulus that's just driving all risk assets yeah.
0: higher. Troy, I've been dying to ask you this question in the two model of the last what three weeks. What have you learned as an observer of hedge funds about GameStop and all that, Robinhood and all that, and the yeah. long-short structure of the hedge fund world? Is it forever changed? You know,
4: forever is a strong term, Tom. Um, You know, much of the, you know, obviously GameStop and and AMC and stocks like that, I mean, they behaved very similar to what happened in the late 90s, but just on steroids. Like everything else is on steroids in this post-pandemic period. And and so what long equity managers are doing across the board is they're moving up in market cap in terms of the shorts that they have on. They're getting even more diversified. Typically their short positions are a quarter to a third that of their longs just because of the asymmetry in your face. Uh, also when in doubt, uh, if you're concerned about systematic risk or beta, there's nothing wrong with using S&P futures or an ETF to take that risk out. But most importantly, avoid crowded shorts. I mean, that, that's kind of shorting 101. Um, I understand the, the you know, profit motive, but you should never be in shorts with uh, more than 30% short interest outstanding. So uh, that's some of the changes that are taking place right now.
5: But Troy, to build on what Tom was talking about, there's sort of a larger question here. Can hedge funds get really outsized value? Can they really find alpha in a world dominated still so much by central bank liquidity, a world that has proven uh, inauspicious, I should say, for hedge fund performance over the past decade?
4: Well, inauspicious is a strong term. I mean, the hedge fund industry has a did very well last year, particularly protecting, protecting capital in March. It's always been challenging to make money on the short side. Um, most investors expect to lose money through shorts over time. But one of the key to having short positions is to stay in the game, right? To mitigate downside in months like March or Q4 of 2018, or during the Eurozone crisis, so you can protect the downside and then go on offense. Um, that being said, and we talked about this last time I was on, the industry is certainly more net long than they've been in quite some time because again, of that cocktail of you know, fairly good virus news, powerful money supply, a never-ending fiscal stimulus that many would argue is is too large at the stage of the game. Um so yeah, alpha on the short side's always been hard. Uh, but fortunately, there's been both the past year and so far this year, there's been more alpha on the long side and obviously negative alpha on the short side.
3: Final question for Lisa, drum roll. Have we <laughs> yeah, got an asset on, shortage, Troy? Let's do it. This is, for, this is for Lisa. This is dedicated. That was <laughs> Thank the dedication. You. Oh, okay, sorry. Do we have an asset shortage? Do we need to issue more debt, Troy?
4: You know, that's a great question, John, because, you know, uh, when people look at deficits, what they always look at is the liability side of the balance sheet and they don't look at the asset side of the balance sheet. So, you know, as the Fed reflates, right, and the Fed also um, prints more money um, and the government issues more debt, what's happened, particularly in the past year, is the value of assets has gone up far more than the value of debt. So you could argue that one way to cure that is to print more debt. However, you know, the, the best argument is to have targeted fiscal stimulus that goes after those that are in the most pain and doesn't continue to create mini bubble after mini bubble after mini bubble that will ultimately lead to, you know, quite a hangover when the Fed is forced to tighten. Now, we we don't expect that anytime soon. It's certainly not this year. But at some point, you know, think of the hangover. There was a hangover after the late 90s. We had a housing bubble in, you know, 05 to 06. Um, There was a mini oil bubble in 08. These things always end in tears. And and so for the time being, you want to monetize that, but you have to have an eye On money supply growth and Fed policy.
3: Troy, great to catch up, sir. Yeah, great to see you guys. Looking well. Troy Gaiske, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir.
0: Bloomberg Intelligence, Michael McClone, has done the best work on Bitcoin. He's looked at the dynamics of it. He's looked at the modern market features of it. He's clearly been way out front in a vector of moving higher from the lower left to the upper right, as a skeptic, uh, Dennis Gartman, would say. Michael McClone joins us this morning with Bloomberg Intelligence. Michael, I want to go back to first principles in a Bloomberg article today on coal in Western China. There are things called miners from Butch Cassidy, who are those guys?
6: It's a global decentralized network following any place they can find cheap energy. From a strategist standpoint, the bottom line is there's 900 coins that can be mined a day. That's the max. Come 2024, it'll drop to 450. So I analyze it as the miners don't matter. It matters to them, but from a strategist predicting price, mm-hmm. this is a set supply schedule. It's declining in terms of percentage. So the only thing that matters is demand. The key th- thing is it's only 900 a day. Come to right. 2024, it drops to 450.
0: Page one of every economics textbook, including the ones Janet Yellen studied, is about scarcity. It is a manufactured, the critics would say, contrived scarcity. That always means nefarious elements come in to force the scarcity away. Who are those nefarious elements that could take the scarcity built into the price increase?
6: Well, there's 8,000 wannabe cryptocurrency Bitcoins out there. There's 8,000 altcoins. So they've tried. There's been many forks. Everyone has worked, but they have no got nowhere near the robustness and adoption that Bitcoin has. So it's been through many And yet it keeps surviving. So that's the key thing about it. It's been killed many times. It keeps coming back. It's gained that global robustness. It's the the go-to reserve now digital asset.
5: I will say, uh, Tom, I just have this image of Butch Cassidy behind a computer plugging in algorithms in U.S. He used them in Bolivia. And it's it's really quite an image. I will say, Mike, there is also a question about just how much institutional adoption there is. This was raised, of course, by Tesla yesterday coming out and saying that they will soon uh, accept Bitcoin as a form of payment. Can you give us a sense of truly how widespread this idea is in major corporations, whether you actually expect to hear some announcements in the near future from other major companies about doing the same.
6: Well initially it was a wave now it's a tsunami and that's just getting started. Remember we're talking about a US corporation that's based in the reserve currency the dollar. Just think of the rest of the world that doesn't have that reserve currency. They have maybe much greater incentive to allocate some of their treasuries to bitcoin. So to me this is just part of what's happening. It's being adopted on a global scale and it's part of the reason I think remember when you got the 30,000 that held support I think this reason 40,000 is going to hold support now it's just going to continue. Something has to go wrong which I knock myself around every day for. I don't know what it it is right now, but it's on. The, it's in that unique phase where sometimes the technicals don't matter as much as what's the next support should it hold, and just focus on your next resistance, which we all kind of know is around fifty thousand. Mike, good round
3: number. the more institutional buying we get, do you think it makes it more complex, more difficult for the government to step in and do something?
6: Oh yes, they're going to continue to regulate. Remember, we just had Ethereum futures launched yesterday. We have Bitcoin futures, so Bitcoin's under the purview of a government. When you fill out your tax, but market, that's
0: not government. That's the establishment of a market. John's talking about government. Regulation of a non-financial, non-coin. When does that happen?
6: Well, it might happen to something like it has happened to gold. But the key thing about Bitcoin is no one's else, pro- no one's project, no one's liability. Like. Ripple XRP was someone's project and liability, and the government's cracked down on them. Here's the key thing about that. The government, the New York DA, cracked down on Tether. Tether's the number one stable coin. That was in April 2019. The market cap then was about $3 billion. So they've been under that purview since 2019. Now the market cap's around $29 billion. So do you think they've done anything illegal since? That's pure organic organic demand. What I see is the world wants a digital digital currencies and digital dollar, and it's getting it, and the government's getting,
3: regulation's getting in there. My final question, how close do you think we are to a very well-known American company that is not run by Elon Musk, doing exactly what Elon Musk announced yesterday? It's inevitable. I don't see what's going to stop it. Wow. Mike mcglone great to catch up, sir. Thank you. Joining us from Bloomberg Intelligence.
0: This is an important interview. Julie Norman is at the University of College in London. She is a political science professor, but is truly one of the world's experts on political activism and social movement. A different take on what we will witness in Washington today. Julie Norman, if you look at the Republicans, the grand old party, the path from Lincoln to where they are right now... There seem to be partitions, and one of them is militia and some of the violence we saw January 6th as well. Tell us about the social movement that defines a more assertive, a more aggressive Republican Party.
7: Well, Tom, I think there are different movements going on right now in the Republican Party, and that's pretty clear, and and across the left as well. I mean, part of what we're seeing in the Republican Party is People who have very legitimate grievances, who saw Trump as somewhat of a channel for that and are just kind of getting into more of this populist way of thinking. But I think that's alongside much more long standing groups like some of the far right extremist groups that we saw at the Capitol Those groups have been around for a long time. They will continue to be around in the future. Um, They really took advantage of that historical moment and have been pretty savvy about recruiting some other individuals into their their ranks these days.
0: What can be the institutional response to the reality of guns, weapons, rifles, whatever uh, in a legislative branch, whether Republican or Democrat? What is the expected or best outcome for the institution?
7: Well, Tom, I think our institutions, and this, you know, this is true for Democrats and Republicans, that most individuals, most lawmakers, and even most American citizens have pretty strong respect to our institutions. They want to see them function well. They don't want to see them be coming, you know, places of, of brawls and violences, even maybe as they were in our in the past in our history. And so, I think it's just, it just makes sense that certain safeguards are put in place to make sure that happens. With that said, I don't think anyone in Washington wants to see the more militarized state that it's in right now continue forever. Those precautions were put in place, obviously, for a reason following January 6th. But they will be, you know, it will go back to some kind of normal in time, but probably with more security measures than we had in the past.
5: Julie, in addition to the highly partisan discussions around impeachment, around the stimulus package, there has been an international effort to regain ties with some of the allies of the United States. One interesting note is that President Biden has not yet had a conversation with Xi Jinping, even though he has had a conversation with Vladimir Putin of Russia. What do you make of that?
7: Well, I think it's a couple of different things, Lisa. For first and foremost, that with Biden, we can expect him to really continue some of the policies of the Trump administration in terms of being tough on China. Biden is not looking to really change that relationship that much, even though his approach might be a little bit different. I think with Putin and that phone call, Biden is also trying to show that the U.S. will stand up to Russia as well in a way that was different from the Trump administration. But there were just certain uh, situations of urgency there that required that call and that engagement. The New START treaty for one that would have expired this past week if they hadn't had that call and that kind of engagement, as well as trying to put some pressure on Russia around Navalny and the demonstrations around his detention.
3: Julie, always wonderful to catch up with you. Thanks for being with us. Julie Norman there, University College of London professor. A really important day down in Washington, D.C.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.